AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for March 31st, 2015. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today I'm joined by Jim Clausing online. Welcome, Jim. Thanks. So it was good to see you last week, and uh, you look more like a camera lens this week. So <laughs> nevertheless, glad <laughs> yeah, to have you. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was fun being there, but now I'm back in my cave again. <laughs> and welcome. Uh, Matt Kaiser, welcome, Matt. Thanks, Brian. How's it and going? And you're still here in person. Still here. Never <laughs> left. <laughs> and uh, Stan Nurlog. Welcome, Stan. Thanks, Brian. Good to see you here. I'm Brian Rexrode, and uh, let's get right to it here. And uh, Stan, I guess you have the first story here. And Go ahead. Start. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's an interesting article in uh, IB Times, a, a UK publication online. It says that, uh, well, it claims that Russia is playing, uh, is emerging as a cyber threat. Mm -hmm. and is playing some sort of like a long game uh, in the cyber war campaign. They kind of list a few countries that have emerged as, as big threats in the cyber threat landscape. And mm -hmm. they talk about in the art, you know, it's an interesting article, first of all. Uh, it's got a lot of interesting uh, points, but I guess one thing that it tries to bring up is this Russian cyber threat. And mm -hmm. something that I don't think was widely reported uh, in the past, you know, most people have always associated APT with China for some mm -hmm. reason. But this article focuses on uh, Russia and North Korea and Iran a little bit. So are there any, any uh, I mean, what, what do they mean by a long game? I think what they're trying to say is that they kind of have not released their full capability. Mm -hmm. So I think the article uh, in citing some sources is saying that, you know, they have a lot of capability. There's a, they're in a big economy. Mm -hmm. uh, they throw a lot of resources towards the cyber threat. Well, they suspect that they throw a lot of resources mm -hmm. towards the cyber program. But they haven't seen a lot of very complex malware yet or it hasn't been published or talked about widely. Mm -hmm. And so they think that they're kind of holding off their best uh, tactics. Mm -hmm. you know? And they're just using what they can uh, when they need to. Uh, one interesting thing they mentioned you know, we can only speculate if it's true or not, is that, um, let's say, let's say the Russian government was actually sponsoring something, they would actually do it through hackers. Mm -hmm. So a third party uh, might be actually doing the cyber threat, mm -hmm. uh, but not the government itself. Mm -hmm. So it, I think we've seen that kind of thing before, or at least it, there's been discussion about that kind of thing before, where uh, presumably another organization, perhaps an independent group or a contractor per se, uh, might be actually doing the attacks. And then uh, I think there have uh, even been, you know, stories that have described almost the inverse of that, that attackers have gone out sort of in an entrepreneurial sense, gone out and tried to gather information, you know, steal intellectual property and perhaps are selling it back to whoever might be interested in it. And uh, if it happens to be information that a nation state might want, they might, they might purchase that. Yeah, exactly. Which makes me think that it almost doesn't matter what kind of who the, the threat actor is necessarily. Mm -hmm. If you got one on your network, any kind, you know, from yeah. a simple crime gang related activity or financial malware, it's probably best to just get it off your network as soon as possible. Yeah, I agree with that. But by the same token, I, I, think, it, I think it kind of matters to understand a little bit who you, 
who you're dealing with. And you know, we kind of pointed out, sometimes it's very difficult to determine who might be attacking you, but there are sort of indicators, the type of malware they're using, some of the uh, you know, tools and the techniques that they're using, uh, and what they're going after might provide it. And I think that's sort of inverse as well. That is, if you have some idea what the group might be, what might be motivating them, you might have some idea where they'd be going or what systems you need to protect better against that type of threat. And uh, I think so, there's some value in that. Yeah, well definitely I think in the f crucial steps of incident response when you don't mm -hmm. have a lot of time to, to think about it. If you do know where the threat is coming from, it can kind of help make your plan a little bit better of how to approach the incident. Mm -hmm. Like you said, where are you going to focus your protections? Um, what kinds of things should you watch out for? Uh, are they going to come in and destroy your network or are they going to try to stay low and kind of hide out, mm -hmm. beaconing once right. in a while? So, yeah, like you said, it, it does matter in terms of understanding what kind of threat they might present you with. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, uh, I think John, uh, James Clapper was mentioned in, the, in that article, right? Yes. And I think he was, uh, you know, he's the director of national intelligence and, uh, for the United States, even though it's a UK article. I, I think they were quoting him, and you know he's um, he, he's come out. There's a national threat assessment report that comes out each year, and uh, they basically reported this year they put cyber threats at the top of the list in terms of national security concerns, and then followed that with basically indicating that Russia, China, uh, North Korea, and Iran were the primary nation states that that um, that we should be concerned about. And uh, I think there are demonstrations of that, that sort of thing. You know, I had the opportunity to see James Clapper speak at the International Conference on Cybersecurity in January. And that's basically a uh, co-sponsored activity. It's uh, with the FBI and Fordham University. It's a pretty good conference. Uh, James Comey sp spoke there as well. He was the uh, director of, uh, he's the director of uh, FBI. And at that time, this was before the national threat assessment report, uh, it was all about North Korea. You know, it was basically uh, the point where they, in fact, that was where they came out to say that they think North Korea was the uh, perpetrator behind the attacks against Sony. And so it was, uh, there was a lot of discussion about it at the time and that uh, made it in the press. It was, uh, it's, a, it's a good conference if anybody has the opportunity to go to it, uh, in particular if you're local to the New York City area. It's uh, one that's uh, convenient as well. So one of the few that happens to be on the East Coast in, in, the, in the dead of winter, <laughs> in fact, but uh, a good conference nevertheless. Any thoughts from you, Jim? Years back, it was you know, mostly criminal activity coming out of Russia, and then it moved to Ukraine. And mm -hmm. you know, you know, the, the capability of the nation state is always something that in the back of my mind, you know, they've got they've got a large military that can funnel a lot of money into it. So I don't I don't doubt that there is some truth to what they're saying in the article that mm -hmm. they you know they've been sitting on some of their capabilities and not using it. Uh, hopefully they won't use it. Yep, that's true. You know, it, and I think in a lot of the I think there are generally two types of threats. Sometimes they don't get distinguished very well. One is industrial espionage. And there certainly is evidence of industrial espionage taking place, and there, there have been, you know, some exchanges of accusations around that. Uh, the other one would be, I guess, this uh, 
this notion of uh, cyber Pearl Harbor, you know, the notion of uh, setting up an attack. And I think, in fact, one of the topics they talk about in that article is this, this idea that, you know, the attack, if there were ever to be such an attack, it's not going to just happen overnight. There's a lot of establishing footholds, ground to, to be able to do that. And that's one of the things that is, a, is sort of a subtlety in the nation state attacks. They may establish a foothold and be a cent I mean, the intent would be to stay invisible, to not necessarily steal any information, just to establish that foothold and, and do it in a lot of places. So that if they want to pull the trigger, they've already, you know, it's kind of like laying landmines in a, uh, to, against your, uh, your enemy so that if they try to cross the line, it's, uh, you know, it's, they're already in waiting for them. So, okay, so uh, on a lighter note, Jim, perhaps <laughs> uh, you can tell us a little bit about, um, you know, I guess there have been actually discussions about nation state threats using hotels as a means to basically get to specific targets. I don't know if this is actually related, but perhaps you can fill us in. This was an article that I saw on Silance's blog um, late last week. There was an announcement that a particular brand of internet gateway for visitor-based networks it's commonly used in hotels and convention centers and places like that. It had a vulnerability that was, it was pretty serious. They had um, unauthenticated access to an rsync daemon um, that would give you basically uh, access to the entire system and uh, the this was reported to the the vendors of the um, of the systems uh, not too long ago but recent you know recently enough and they have provided a patch um, but, you know, one of the things that was pointed out in this blog post was if they did manage to uh, get root access to these devices, um, they may actually have access to, to more than just the, uh, you know, the, the web traffic or whatever, the, the um, Wi-Fi traffic in the hotel. Mm -hmm. These devices are often integrated into the property management system. Mm. Um, the, so that's the uh, software that is used to coordinate all of the operational functions, front office sales planning. Mm -hmm. you know, it can have reservation stuff, point of mm -hmm. sale stuff, phone stuff, account receivable, marketing, all kinds of stuff, HR, payroll. Um, could all be part of this property management system, and that's the, the really the scary part is mm -hmm. that you know the, with this unauthenticated access to these gateways, they could act, then uh, have access to a lot of sensitive uh, you know, personal information. Now, fortunately, there was a patch that was uh, supposed to have been released on March 26th. I have not verified that it is actually out. Um, that fixes it. And the other simple fix for it is to block inbound access to the rsync port, mm -hmm. um, you know, with a, you know, IP tables type rule or something. Uh, so 
Yeah, it was. Oh, okay, yeah, I just found it. the The vulnerability was reported to U.S. CERT on February twelfth, and they coordinated with the vendor, so the patch was scheduled to be released on the twenty sixth. Okay. So, what is the rsync port? Do you recall? In this case, rsync was running on port eight seventy three, TCP okay. port eight seventy three. Well, that should be pretty innocuous to block that port. Interesting. Yeah, <laughs> and from the. Yeah. One of the researchers here um, did a, a scan um, of looking for that port on across the internet and found a number of them that were uh, directly accessible from the internet, mm. which is not such a good thing. Right. In okay. Well, uh, you know, I think that's this is a good example, and as you were pointing out that uh, it doesn't really matter, I mean, it does matter. Any device that's connected to the network, or, or certainly if it's accessible from the internet, is one that you need to be paying attention to because it could become a gateway into other things. You know, if we reflect back on the target attacks, that ultimately was actually through a, a, a third-party vendor HVAC system that they ended up being able to get access into the target enterprise network and then ultimately get into their point of sale systems to perform those credit card thefts and the, uh, the theft of uh, customer uh, information. And so uh, it, there really needs to be, I, I think on one hand, you want to make sure you have some understanding of what your perimeter is, but on this, I guess the second part of this, we always want to build layers, make sure that there are protections if that first boundary is is uh, breached and to be able to uh, to, to protect the uh, the rest of the environment. And uh, you know, the, the notion of our partitioning networks or partitioning off applications certainly is an important part of a good security architecture, right? So I'm, Stan's nodding yes. <laughs> I'm just curious if, if this there's a, was a really good reason for the rsync port to be open on this device in the first place, or is this just a, a, a case of poor configuration management where the vendor should have shut this before they shipped the product? That's a good question. It may have been, uh, I'm just going to take a wild guess, perhaps they had some type of a high reliability function to be able to sync across the devices and keep them uh, you know, synchronized in terms of configuration. Mm -hmm. uh, that would be a valid reason for it, but obviously you want to design that into it. There's a possibility that in some of the installations they didn't know about the feature or weren't paying attention to that uh, that functionality or the, the concerns that it could generate. And I, I'm just guessing, but that would be one. Yeah, it, it isn't clear what the purpose of it was. You know, the high availability is 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 a good possibility, but even even then, it you know it should have been authenticated. Mm -hmm. you know, use our uh, SSH private keys or something like that mm -hmm. to you know to lock it down. This this was unauthenticated, so. Yeah, that that was a misconfiguration of some sort. Yeah. You know, don't, as I said, I don't know what the original purpose was, but uh, anything that's got access to, you know, the root of the file system as root with no authentication is not a good thing. Mm -hmm. Good point. Okay, so Stan, let's uh, go back to you here, and um, so you know, we're always kind of studying denial of service attacks. This one is a little, gives a little new twist, at least from my perspective. Yeah. Well, the another thing I'm always studying is uh, use of proxies and things mm -hmm. like that, and proxies in general. Uh, so this is where the two worlds collide. Uh, an article, I think, in uh, CSO Online uh, talked about how 
I guess there was a study conducted a few years ago where some of the DDoS attacks, application-based DDoS attacks, were coming from um, proxy nodes. For example, one such would be like a Tor exit node or something mm -hmm. like that, uh, or other anonymously available free proxies or even maybe paid proxies. Uh, but now, when they've done the study, uh, they're saying that it's maybe as much as 20%, uh, so a fifth of mm -hmm. all of these application layer uh, DDoS attacks are happening through the use of proxies. And uh, I think when we were preparing the, the report today for the internet weather, I think we we have something there on the statistics we'll on the use and scanning of, for yeah. proxies and things like that. Uh, but it certainly explains a little bit on you know, people are always trying to find proxies. What's the reason for that, you know? Mm -hmm. Maybe they're trying to f have more anonymous browsing of the internet, or maybe they're trying to, you know, commit these kinds of DDoS attacks using the proxies. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's an interesting article. There's some uh, statistics there. Uh, something like, I, I think they were saying, 40% of the proxy traffic comes from actually Tor exit nodes. Mm -hmm. And then of that, 65 uses a specific type of attack over Tor or a specific type of tool over Tor. Mm -hmm. Does Tor have that? I think so, yeah. Right. Um, so uh, th when you say application level attacks, can you distinguish what, what makes it application versus That's a good point. Else? I guess that refers to the, uh, the, the network stack. So mm -hmm. there's some attacks uh, where you just send a packet and it doesn't matter if the receiving, well, it doesn't matter if you've established a connection. Mm -hmm. It just, the packet goes and it does its thing, and that by itself may cause a, a DOS attack, or um, there could be an attack where you're just overwhelming the bandwidth or something like that, or mm -hmm. some of these, you know, basically a bandwidth-based attack. And other application-based attacks is when you connect through the network, so you, you establish the TCP session, and it's probably the only kinds of attacks that can use a proxy, really, because you got to connect to the proxy, and the proxy has to connect to the application. So it'll be like a web server or something like that, and one type of attack might be, you know, you connect to the web server and you wait a little bit more than a usual user would before sending packets mm -hmm. uh, or information. And if you do that enough, uh, potential there's potential for resource usage and uh, a denial of service. So if you're going through a proxy, you're not going to be able to control the TCP session setup itself. Right. So you wouldn't be able to do a, a SYN attack, for example. Right. And uh, we talk a lot about reflection attacks. That's probably out of the uh, out, of, out of scope in this case, in most circumstances, anyway. But uh, it's a case where once you've set up that TCP session, you can just send a packet, right? Because the proxy is just relaying packets at that point, right? And then send a packet, and then send a packet, and so it holds the session up. And if you can do that thousands of times, it would tend to create a resource exhaustion, perhaps in the firewall in the front of an end of an application where it's trying to keep state or on the application itself where it's trying to keep state of the sessions right. themselves. And you're also building some sort of anonymity, anonymity, sorry, <laughs> anonymity <laughs> uh, around yourself being, you know, uh, not exposing your own IP address space. You're right. coming in through somewhere else and, uh, you know, if there was some sort of investigation, it would always point back to these proxies. So there's some, something there for the attackers to hide their presence. It actually right. made me think just while we're talking about another type of attack that was using proxies where uh, this is not this doesn't exist anymore but it was an interesting twist. People were uh, able to log in I think it was uh, to uh, also web proxies mm -hmm. but when they issued the connect command they were able to connect not over port 443 like you would normally do or port 80 they would connect over like port 25 or 
or these other ports and actually send spam mm. via like a SSL proxy. Right. So the use of proxies has been around for a long time mm -hmm. to enable this kind of malicious activity. Yeah, um, it's interesting the increase here. I think the, uh, you know, generally speaking, we've noticed that denial of service attacks have gone up significantly. There's been a lot of commercialization. And I kind of wonder to what extent some of this activity is related to commercialization as well. I think the other, they also mentioned the, you know, how inexpensive it is effectively to be able to generate, mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, generate a lot of sources of the activity. And uh, there can be subtleties that you can build into it that, you know, each of the proxies is just a little bit different, uh, or, you know, pro different proxy services or different proxies if you're just scanning around and finding them that might make it a little more difficult for the mitigators to be able to, uh, you know, generate a signature that blocks all of it or be able to, uh, to track it. So uh, also attributes that um, from attacker's point of view, a good thing, something that the mitigation services will need to be aware of to be able to do a good job doing that mitigation. It's also a little harder to detect in general if you're looking from a network standpoint. I mean, mm -hmm. basically, you're seeing very, very low volume of traffic where we would, you typically expect massive amounts of traffic. That would be your first tip off that you're under a DDoS mm -hmm. attack. You know, with a situation like this, if you're not monitoring the processes on your server, you're not going to know there's even an attack going on until your admins call you up and say, you know, we've got this problem. We have no idea how to deal with it. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, all of the threads in Apache are completely pegged. Mm -hmm. What is this? Yeah, it may not be uh, a full network resource exhaustion that occurs. And most, it most likely won't be. Right. Yeah, yeah you know, I can't, I can't even tell you how many times I've run into situations where um, uh, folks aren't really paying attention to what's happening on their network until something gets pegged. Yep. You know, something goes down and they start investigating, well, the CPU's pegged or where your network's running at 90%, and then uh, everything's an attack after that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because it, you know, it, it, it used to be that stuff was there, but they didn't realize it was there because it was, you know, there may be something that kicked it over the edge and then everything's an attack after that. So it takes a little while to get used to what the rhythm is and, you know, what types of activity you normally see that just aren't normal. I mean, not things that you would expect to see on, on a network, but they're certainly there. So all good things. The bad stuff's not good things, but <laughs> good things to be aware of. <laughs> okay, uh, you know, Jim, I guess you get the, uh, the, the privilege of talking about all the little holes in things today. And uh, I guess we're not just blowing blowing smoke here, right? We're yeah, it is. Uh, on on March seventeenth, the uh, Industrial Control Systems CERT part of U.S. CERT released uh, an advisory about a cross-site request forgery vulnerability in a certain in the operating system of a certain brand of wind turbine. Now, cross-site request forgery is an attack where, you know, a malicious, you know, website or email or whatever can cause a user's web browser to uh, perform an unwanted action on, on the trusted site. And so this cross-site request forgery vulnerability in, on, in these wind turbines would allow an attacker to get username and password um, and potentially change the default user password on the uh, in the web management interface of these wind turbines um, now what exactly they can do with that I don't know shut them down probably uh, not sure what it else malicious you 
necessarily be doing there. But um, these wind turbines are uh, apparently in use in uh, a number of countries. I think the vendor said they believe they're in use in like 29 countries or something like that around the world. Mm. So, uh, and there is a patch uh, available, needs to be manually applied, mm. but um, there's a patch available to it. But, you know, it's another one of these situations where these industrial control systems, uh, just like a lot of stuff we talk about on this show, probably shouldn't be directly exposed to the internet mm-hmm. you know at best you know they should be you know in their own protected network you know vpn or whatever mm-hmm. uh, these are just not the kinds of things you know wind turbines uh, electric meters all of this industrial control system kind of stuff really shouldn't be directly uh, visible to the internet yeah, so this uh, this could actually be a safety hazard. Is that correct? I mean, if you can control the speed of the turbine, get it over spec, is that a possibility in this scenario? That that that's a possibility. I, it's not clear to me what exactly all of the all of the capabilities are through the web interface, mm-hmm. but um, but apparently the default user via that web interface has administrative access. They've got complete control. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, potentially it could do some damage to the equipment, possibly, um, or or certainly you know take the thing offline and cause issues for the the power grid or whatever. So yeah, uh, yeah, this has the potential to be kind of serious. Yeah, and uh, and it, you know as you pointed out, um, it, we talked about it even just a little bit ago about you really want a layered security model. And the notion of being able to protect this through VPN services. In fact, I would I would expect that in a lot of these wind turbines located out in the field somewhere. I don't know. I guess they're electrically connected anyway, so they might not. Uh, it might not be a big deal to wire it in. But you know, I think in some of these remote sensors, uh, Internet of Things, the tendency is to want to use a, uh, a mobility network to to connect it. And there are in fact services so that you can get basically on a closed network to be able to. Uh, help protect the uh, sort of the perimeter around those devices and uh, minimize the potential of exposure if there is a vulnerability of this sort. All right. Well, thanks for bringing that, Jim. That's uh, a good topic. So uh, let's go to you, Matt. And um, Stan talked about one flavor of denial service attack. And uh, actually, this might be sort of a little bit related, right? (laughs) Sort of a little bit related, sure. (laughs) Um, So this is a a pretty fascinating story. Uh, There's an organization called Great Fire. Uh, they're an anti-censorship organization that focuses mostly on the, the center censorship within China. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as such, they're a regular target of, of Chinese uh, interest, we'll just mm-hmm. say that. Uh, recently, their website's gone under DDoS attack. Uh, and shortly thereafter, some of their, their pages on GitHub were also under DDoS attack mm-hmm. by a huge amount of attackers. And now GitHub is calling this the biggest DDoS they've ever seen. Mm-hmm. So this is significant. The interesting part about the attack is the sources of the traffic, uh, because it seems that these are just normal users. Mm-hmm. Um, and through a little bit of investigation, Great Fire is, has, has shown that the sources of the traffic are visitors to websites that have um, assets that use um, Baidu, which is a Chinese search engine. They also have something called Baidu Analytics. Which is similar to Google Analytics. If you know, if you're a website owner, you insert a little bit of JavaScript code in your site, and it tracks mm-hmm. 
usage of the site for you by who visits. Apparently, somewhere along the path between these users' computers and the Baidu servers, that Baidu Analytics code is being intercepted and replaced with JavaScript that causes a number of requests to be made against these target servers. Bizarre. Really bizarre <laughs> and kind of amazing. Yeah. So from what, what they've reported is that about 1% of users are being redirected, at least that, that bit of the code is being redirected to this attack code. Mm -hmm. It's being basically manipulated in line. And so the, the assertion there is that this is some aspect of the Great Firewall being used to not just censor traffic, mm -hmm. but actually actively manipulate it to turn visitors to sites into DDoS participants, mm -hmm. which is a pretty hefty claim. Yeah. Um, but it also kind of shows- Ongoingly. Ongoing. Unknowingly. Oh, unknowingly, yes, this <laughs> that is true. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's a good point because um, GitHub, uh, I guess, has been in communications with Great Fire because mm -hmm. it was, you know, GitHub's hosting the content, it belongs to Great Fire. They've been coordinating. Mm -hmm. um, GitHub has actually inserted their own warning messages into sites. So if you end up at Baidu and that, that attack code is in there somewhere, it's, it, it makes a request to GitHub servers. And what'll happen is the request to GitHub will come back with GitHub's own injected code that says, you're visiting a site that may be compromised, you mm. should probably worry about this. Now these are all you know, plain text sites. If you were using SSL, you probably wouldn't have this opportunity to yeah. inject the code in there, which you know, if you want to use that as an excuse to start saying people should start encrypting everything, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's one argument for it. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, it, it, I think this, it, the, the thing that boggles my mind here is you know, we talk a little bit about attribution. Now this is a case where I suspect the attribution has a lot to do with circumstantial information or evidence as opposed to, I mean, you can't, how do you trace that back? How do you define who the attacker is in a case like that? Well, that's a really tricky one. The, 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 the interesting part is somebody actually has done it, and that's URL query, mm -hmm. which I, I know we're all familiar with. as a website that if you, if you go to it, you browse to it, you give it a URL, mm -hmm. it'll go and, and check it out. Um, apparently, it passes through that same sort of, you know, mm -hmm. whatever manipulation is, is, is occurring, and their logs indicate the, the, the contents of that JS file that keeps coming back, mm -hmm. and they, they can see this is the attack code, and this is the site I tried to visit, and this is what came back. Right, okay. So it, it shows the manipulation in action. You can see that, but where did the code come from? How do you know? Well, that, that, <laughs> that, there's no, yeah, that's the thing. I don't yeah. think there's any, I'm not clear on this. That may not be a particular server that it's reaching out to get. Mm -hmm. It may exist somewhere in the memory of the devices that are doing this inline manipulation, mm -hmm. in which case you're right, you wouldn't have evidence anywhere but in these in these interstitial you know interstitial devices yeah. certainly a tricky one i i mean i don't this is uh it, I, I think it just really kind of broadens your mind in terms of the the levels of indirection and, and you know tricks that can be uh that can it was be interesting conveyed. to me the the strategy that you said github took with the reinjection of <laughs> other code <laughs> back to the users i just well, it's, it's their uh, own site. They can return whatever they want to. So yeah. if, you, mm -hmm. if you've ever been to a website where someone was, you know, hot-linking an image, and it would eventually be replaced by, you know, this site is not authorized to use this image, they, they may be using the refer Similar header. Similar technology, something like that. Something yeah. like mm -hmm. that to figure out where the request is supposed to be coming from and then say, uh, we need to worry about this, return something different. But so, it's a very creative solution, I think, well, you know. It's, in general, it's a pretty co creative solution on both sides. Um, the one thing that worries me is that you've got but if, if the claims are true that this is 1% of the traffic, imagine if 100% of the traffic was manipulated. Take any major mm -hmm. website 
And then if you can own the infrastructure around it, and you can inject your own content into what comes back, you can turn any visitor into an unknowing participant in an attack. Right. At right. huge scales. Yeah, I wonder how scalable it is. Yeah, you've got to imagine if it was really true that that could be done, it's probably not trivial to establish that at scale. Mm -hmm. Maybe they figured it out. Well, and I think, uh, I think part of it is going to be it, understanding what's going on is, I think, an important part to be able to generate a, uh, a defense against it. So. Is, uh, I think this is something that's probably worth some additional investigation and how it could develop going forward. And uh, we're not, uh, I guess, uh, Matt, you have another one that uh, has its own little nuances and complexities here. Sure. So th I just keep finding the interesting stories, in my yeah. opinion. Uh, I'll spread them out a little bit more next time. But um, this is an article um, from Symantec. They're talking about a spam campaign on Twitter mm -hmm. using uh, fake accounts. And this, this is kind of unique in that it's a very, very large spam campaign of about 75,000 Twitter bots wow. um, in coordinated action. Now, because it's Twitter and because, I guess, you know, security researchers have a sense of humor, if they've broken down the three tiers of actors of bots into mockingbirds, parrots, and eggs, um, mockingbirds being basically the, the primary source of spam content. So mm -hmm. this would be the, the one um, account that says, Hey, brand new, you know, green coffee weight loss supplements. Mm -hmm. This is awesome. Get it while you can. And they usually are, are designed to, to mimic very popular accounts in their own right. So if it looks like MTV or some celebrity or something like that, that someone could ostensibly, you know, mistake for a real, you know, valuable account or follow-worthy account. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're at the top of the chain. And you've got parrots, which they found were almost always accounts using photographs of women that were following and retweeting that top that that uh, mockingbird account. So they're basically the, the echo chamber for these. Mm -hmm. So you know, as they they build their own networks, they retweet this this information. Other people maybe will start following them, legitimate users, and amplify that effect. And this is where the spam spreads. Right, right. Then you've got your eggs, which are basically just blank accounts. Then if anybody uses Twitter, you know that a blank you know unset up account has an egg as its icon which is where the name comes from. Mm -hmm. But these are sort of the, the backup accounts. Whenever um, either your Mockingbird or your Parrot accounts get taken out, there's a, a, a hierarchy of progression where mocking, you know, Parrots become Mockingbirds, Eggs become Parrots. And the, the vast majority of the accounts that are being used are, are these reserve accounts, these Eggs. Like something like 95% of the accounts that they found associated with this activity are just sitting around waiting to be used. Wow. which is a huge number of, of fake accounts to be sort of in the wings. But it, it shows that the, the lengths that these guys are willing to go to just to send some spam about supplements. And who says there aren't creative people in this world today? <laughs> I mean, seriously. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, so, it, you know, I kind of wonder to what extent this kind of thing can it, it translate into Facebook or other, you know, social media that, um, and, and whether there are controls sufficiently in place to be able to, uh, I, I think the one thing with Twitter is it, it tends to be a little bit more open in terms of discovery mm -hmm. than, uh, than Facebook is at least at this point. But, you know, I, I'm not sure to what extent it translates. It'd be an interesting, uh, interesting thing to think about. There's a couple of points there. One is Twitter does verify those kind of celebrity accounts. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're not paying attention, maybe you'll be fooled. But if you're aware of, you know, this is Celebrity A's official account, a new one shows up that mm -hmm. says, I'm Celebrity A, but it's not verified. It's, it's not as effective. Uh, Facebook, I think they still do this. They will 
if anytime you link off of the site, they'll ask you, are you sure you want to go to mm -hmm. site name here? So that's sort of a, will slow you down a bit and make you think, do I really want to go to this external site, even mm -hmm. though, you know, fake celebrity told me to. Um, but I guess the same principles of building the social network around a single, you know, follow-worthy account mm -hmm. and all the, the echo chambers surrounding that are probably pretty similar. Mm -hmm. So I don't see why you so. couldn't do it. So uh, any idea what the countermeasure is that, uh, that Twitter's Well, Semantics, speaking with Twitter about it, they've been working this on the back end. I think they've got a way of correlating these accounts and knowing the, the creator. Mm -hmm. I assume if you start changing these accounts by who registered them or where from, you can start evading those mechanisms as well. Mm -hmm. um, but I think social graph analysis is probably the right way to go about it, to try and figure mm -hmm. out, you know, have, have we suddenly seen, you know, you've got a top tier account that, you know, is a little bit questionable, but all of a sudden everybody's following it and retweeting everything that they say. Mm -hmm. um, you might be able to, to suss those, those cores out. Mm -hmm. Hopefully. I think a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was last week, you talked a little bit about CAPTCHA. Yeah. And, and you know, making it into a game instead of the, uh, the funky characters. But the, um, uh, you know, it, perhaps that's a way that, could, if, even if you can identify suspect accounts, you, you mentioned these are bots, that is some of the echoing that's going on is being automated, I presume? I, I assume so. But the thing about that is Twitter is so integrated with so many other platforms at this point and basically the Twitter API allows you oh, to post as somebody from well, TweetDeck right. or some other software. So I guess what I was thinking is in terms of supplementing correlation analysis, that is once you find a, a suspect ones, it gives you an opportunity to put some things in. But I guess your point it was well taken. If there's the intent to be able to facilitate automation, then that would put a little bit of a hiccup in things. You might be able to do it at the account creation time, mm -hmm. so you can't just massively sign up for these things. Now there are services out there that you can definitely pay. I was going through some of my old notes and I, I noticed there's one called Death by Captcha. Uh, apparently, <laughs> you can just pay someone to solve captures for you all day. Oh, that, that, this is true. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, <laughs> it can be. They're uh, all they're all partial solutions. They're always countermeasures for it. Okay. Well, that's certainly a mind-boggling one in itself. So thanks for bringing that. Uh, let's take a look at the internet weather for the last week or so here and. Uh, Matt, you were taking a little bit of a look at this one. I think we're uh, still trying to get our head around what might be going on here. Mm -hmm. But um, port 4143 and port 4183 UDP yep. showed up. And what are your thoughts? Well, it's, it's interesting. They, they showed up at practically the same instant. If you take mm -hmm. a look at the graph, you can see that, I mean, the, the spikes start at the same time. We took a look at the sources, and um, I can't remember which one is which. I believe that the, the smaller spikes there are ind indicative of ones outside of the United States yeah. as sources, and the huge spikes are, are ones that are within the United States. It may just be a, a question of the vantage point that we have for this traffic. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't know. Looked pretty biased to me. Okay. Yeah, so uh, it, the observation was that in port 4143 that appeared to be predominantly U.S. based, uh, and there were a couple of little exceptions, but you know, the geographic mapping for IP addresses isn't perfectly accurate anyway. And then for 4183, it seemed like it was almost exclusively outside US, South America and Europe and, uh, and Asia. And so I, I guess that's what we're, it appears that, uh, and the other aspect of this is that it appears that this is P2P activity. Packet size is fixed. Um, it always has an ephemeral port going toward one of these other, uh, you know, these other ports, 4183 or 4143. So uh, my suspicion is, and the, I guess the other aspect of this, we saw some of the sources that looked like perhaps Internet of Things type uh, devices that were perhaps compromised, a lot of them demonstrating the uh, ROM pager yep. uh, web server. 
And so uh, that would suggest perhaps that, um, and that's what, is that the 7543 port? 7547, yeah. Oh, 47, I'm sorry, yeah, it's 7547 TCP. And so uh, if, when you have a, I mean, that's not that popular report. If it's showing up on there with a large majority of these items, it's probably uh, associated with that. There was a, uh, a vulnerability disclosed for ROM pager in December. It was, it was the vulnerability was disclosed in December, December and uh, it was an authentication bypass. So that perhaps is a, uh, a mechanism or an avenue that's being used here to get into devices, infect them, and I suspect the uh, setting up a peer-to-peer -peer network. And there may be some motivation for the regional separation. And in fact, may, there perhaps may be other ports that we haven't discovered yet that are covering other regions or some other purpose. So um, anyway, if you see this sort of activity on your network, you probably want to investigate that a little bit further and see perhaps if it's a uh, an indication of this activity having leaked into your network. And uh, Stan, this was the one that, that you referred to earlier, that is scan sources on various proxy ports, I guess is what we're graphing here, but the one that's really up and on top here is port 8080. You know, we talk a lot about scanning activities, and some of the ones that are shown here, by the way, uh, port 3128 is uh, shown here, 3159, um, and then uh, 8123, I wasn't familiar with that particular one. Stan, you may, sorry, Matt, I'm calling you Stan again. <laughs> um, you, you were looking at the, uh, the ports here. I, I guess you dug up some, uh, some popular proxy ports to, uh, to show in this graph. Yep. Um, you know, what's actually notable here is in the last week or so, there was actually a pretty significant increase on the number of sources scanning on port 8080, and it kind of feeds into that notion that perhaps a lot of this, or at least some of this scanning activity looking for proxies would be perhaps to help anonymize denial service tax. But, um, you know, we're, we're speculating on that particular fact, but there certainly is a lot of uh, scanning activity going on or a lot of sources doing that. Uh, taking a look at the uh, most probed ports, the top 10 of those, that is, uh, port 135 TCP, uh, still a head scratcher on that one. I guess uh, for some reason somebody has found that to be lucrative and so they're continuing to scan for uh, port 135, followed by port 22 TCP, 443 TCP, uh, 23 TCP. Um, and then well, I guess it looks like, um, I just wanted to mention, oh, I guess 443 hasn't moved much. Uh, 1900 UDP, that would be associated with uh, reflective denial service attack activity, 445. That continues to move down, that's kind of a good sign. Uh, 80 TCP and then 8080. 8080 we've just taken a look at. 3389 remote desktop protocol and then 53 UDP. And uh, the, the other part of the pie seems to be getting bigger, which suggests that there are a lot of other ports that are a significant contribution to, uh, to, to the whole here. But uh, keep in mind, it's just the top 10 ports that represents uh, well, roughly 60% of the total. So uh, that's a, a meaningful observation in itself. Looking in terms of the most sources doing that probing, of course, we had just looked at port 8080 as a part of that, which is a, is a, a contributor, but doesn't show up on this graph. Um, and then, uh, well, I guess we're starting to see some growth in the port 4143 and port 4183 still doesn't show up in this graph, but- uh, oh, 4143 does show up. Oh, it does up. show up. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, 445 at the top of the list, followed by port 23, and so we've been watching the port 23 go down. I suspect it's kind of flattened out here, 
Uh, it hasn't really moved since the, the last week or so. Uh, 27.015 UDP and uh, 20, excuse me, 68.81 UDP, both associated with uh, uh, P2P networking activity. Uh, we have some ICMP ports in here. 41.43 does show up uh, at, uh, looks like number eight there. And then uh, 1900 UDP, again, uh, simple service discovery protocol associated with distributed uh, uh, reflection denial service attack activity. That's our show for today. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at threattrack at list.att.com, and you can follow us on Twitter. Uh, you can get uh, notice of new episodes on Twitter. It's at, at ATT Security. And the uh, ThreatTrack video is available on att.com slash threattrack, as well as on the, and that would be the ATT Tech channel, as well as on YouTube, and uh, it's available in an audio version on iTunes. Uh, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Stan. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Jim. I'm Brian Rexford. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.